Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Um, welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. My name's Mon Shafter, my pronouns are they and them, and I'm very, very happy to welcome you all here to Daniel Lavery, Dear Prudence, and more. Before we get into our convo, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And if you're wondering who I am, um, so I'm Mon, I'm the content lead of ABC Queer, which is a, a content initiative at the ABC aimed at LGBTQIA plus young people. I host a queer podcast called Innies and Outies, which is all about coming out stories and stories about staying in. And um, I'm fortunate to be a co-host of our coverage of Mardi Gras each year on the ABC, which is a, a super fun gig. My girlfriend tells me I'm a professional gay, so that's, that's, that's the, the short version. Um, before I introduce our wonderful guest properly, um, I have a few short announcements. Please switch your mobile phones to silent. You don't want to be that guy. Uh, the festival asks that you don't record the event, that you please keep photos to a minimum, and you use the hashtag Sydney Writers Festival if you're tweeting. But I do ask if people are still on Twitter these days with Musk at the helm. I'm not sure. Are you still on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, cool. Was it owned by a good person before? Uh, yeah, fair point, fair point. Um, there will be a little bit of time at the end for you to ask some questions, a couple of questions. Um, perhaps you'd like to ask for some advice, maybe. Um, Daniel will also be available to sign books after this session. The, this year, the bookshop is in the main foyer and book signings will take place in Bay 22, which is the festival hub, where you can also grab something to eat and drink. So... Daniel Lavery is probably most well-known for dishing out some very wise counsel as agony aunt in Slate's Dear Prudence column, which now also comes in book form. Um, he's a beloved internet weirdo. Hope you don't mind me saying that. I say it, you know, with, with such praise and admiration, um, which includes co-founding the legendary feminist website, The Toast. Uh, you've got a new one, The Stopgap. Um, you've got newsletters, lots of things going on. You're the author of three books, um, your most recent being something that may shock and discredit you, which was written after you began affirming your gender. And you're also a proud dog parent, right? Yes. All of that's true. I was just trying to count how many books I had written. I think Ooh. that it's four. Four now. But I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Somebody in the audience will know. Okay. You're just writing so prolifically. It's like, I've lost count. I've lost count. They're, they're, they're all somewhere. Okay. Cool. Um, and where are your puppies right now? They're at home, I believe and assume. Uh, <laughs> I hope. Frankly, uh, their names are Bonbon bon and Gogo, -Go, yeah. uh, and they're very, very small. Okay, you're doing okay without them? I, it, it is unpleasant to be away from them for this long. It's been a remarkable trip, okay. but uh, I'm upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So zoom them later on. There, it's, it, it makes it worse because, like, a dog is so much its physicality, and you see them in their little cotton ball bodies. It's just upsetting. Yeah. I got to yeah. get home. Oh. Um, so you dished out advice for Slate's Dear Prudence column um, for four years up until 2021, mm -hmm. um, and you offered guidance on everything from romantic relationships, friendships, parental advice, workplace, you know, relationships. Um, you were only 29 when you landed that gig. Why do you think 
they picked you? What were your qualifications at that point? Man, I just, I love remembering that I used to be 29. I remember at the time feeling so like, my God, I'm so young. I can't, who will listen to me? And now I just think, oh God, I was 29. That's incredible. I shouldn't have felt bad about anything. I should have just started every answer with, well, I'm 29. So I must know what I'm doing. Um, Yeah, it was totally serendipitous. As I think most people who pick up jobs as advice columnists, you don't do it by going to advice columnist school or training for years and years. It's mostly to do with like luck, proximity, opportunity, and cronyism. Somebody likes you. They like the way you write about other things. They think you might give good advice. They ask you if you want to. You say yes. It's like being asked to be Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. If someone says, for your next job, do you want to tell other people what they should do for their personal lives? You say absolutely. (laughs) Where do I I sign? Of course. Um, So it was very, very exciting. And I certainly did feel a little self-conscious. Also, thank you for fact-checking how old I was because I was doing an interview earlier this week and I said I was 27. Because in my (laughs) mind, I was like, God, I was so young. I bet I was 27. And I need to be careful because otherwise I'm going to keep cultivating my own mythology (laughs) and I'll be giving interviews someday where I'm like, no, I was 12 when I first started giving advice. (laughs) Dear Prudence, you're keeping me honest and I need that. Cool, cool. Well, what are some of the the questions that stick with you from from that experience? There's a number of questions that stick with me, some of them in part because of their poignancy, some of them because I found the letter writers really compelling or um, really unique or winsome in their ability to discuss their own problems, their own pathologies. But the one that is most on the forefront of my mind today is one that was coming up for me again earlier this week um, because it was a workplace issue. And I love those. I think workplace-related problems are some of the most unique because often with romantic or family type problems, they can be pretty repetitive. Like, I'm afraid of disappointing my father. I want to break up with my girlfriend, but I don't want to hurt her feelings. But the workplace is just an unending sea of possible problems. (laughs) And this one guy had written in, and he was genuinely distraught. He really did seem to want to change, but didn't know how. And he had asked one of his coworkers if she was pregnant, not once, not twice, but three times (laughs) in four months. Whoa. And he said, now she won't talk to me, which I understand. And I'm also worried I might lose my job. And I I remember because I said, I also think maybe you should. Like, that's very bad. But also, maybe you should go see a doctor if this is new for you. Like, I wanted to know, like, are you forgetting other things? Are you putting milk back in the cupboard instead of the fridge? Like, are you well? But I just, I think about him all the time. And I think about her. Like, I, I... can you imagine three times in four months getting asked that question but and just like, going does he, back? Does he understand how fertility works or he just thinks she's lying? Like. It, seems like, it seems like a memento problem. You remember in that movie I used to keep writing down, like tattooing all over his body, like my wife is dead, I must find her killer. And I think that was actually part of my advice is you need to like tattoo post-it notes over yourself of like, don't talk to her, don't look at her, don't ask anyone if they're pregnant, just like put your head back down. I think about him a lot. Right, right. Um, one of the, the stories that stood out for me was um, about toenail clippings. So a person in someone's life who was leaving toenail clippings around the place. And you seemed a little stumped by that at first. Can you please share with our audience what that request for advice was about? I, I would be happy to. And to be clear, it's not just that mentioning toenails really stymies me. I'm, <laughs> I was good at my job. Um, but <laughs> the problem was this letter writer said, you know, I've been married to my husband now for five years. He's a great husband. They always start that way, right? Because it's <laughs> if it was like he's a terrible husband and he does the toenails thing, there would be no question she would have left. 
Um, but she said the one issue is whenever he clips his toenails, he does it like uh, at the at, on the couch, like in front of the TV, and he leaves his toenails willy nilly around the house. Like he'll just pile them up on the coffee table and wander away, or he'll put them on the couch and then I'll go to sit down and they're there. And she had tried everything. Like over the course of five years, she'd talked to him about it. She'd written reminders. She'd gotten upset. And, you know, you know she'd even sometimes had, had taken them and put them in his coffee cup. And that didn't work either. And I just thought, like, if you pick up your coffee cup to take a big sip of coffee and your lips are met with your own toenails and you don't think, I need to change my life, like that Vilka poem about the statue of young Apollo... <laughs> <laughs> then, like, how could anyone get through to you? And so I think that's why I felt really stunned, was just like, you're a human being. You deserve to be treated like a human being, and this man won't listen to reason. And so I think at a certain point, I also just gave her permission to, to um, I, you know, I always hate to say, like, leave over one little thing, but I think if you were to hear someone say at a dinner party, I had a great husband, things were great, unfortunately, he left his toenails around the house... <laughs> for five years and nothing I said changed his mind, people would say, I'm really sorry you did what you had to do. <laughs> and then I think the other suggestion I made was like, if the coffee cup's not working, maybe try sprinkling them on his toothbrush and see if that does it. But mm -hmm. I doubt that would work. At this Solid point. advice, I, I think. I mean, again, I, he, he lives in my head rent-free, as they say. <laughs> um, you, transi you transitioned while you were writing that column, mm -hmm. did that have much of an impact on the sorts of requests for advice that were coming in? Some, certainly. And, you know, it was, it was a really, like, personally action-packed four and a half years for me. And so uh, it wasn't that I had planned on transitioning during my time there, but uh, I, I did. And uh, I'm, I'm sure, actually, that at least part of that was because this was the only job I ever had where I had to look at a giant picture of my own face while I was doing it. <laughs> um, the column and the live chat, which was a sort of, like, in-real-time version of the column that I did every Monday, had just a huge, it felt huge, a huge picture of my face emblazoned at the top of every column, which I did not love. Um, and it was like this headshot I had taken right before I started the job. And again, I was self-conscious about being 29 because I was so young at the time. I was 29. Um, and I'd gotten like a professional headshot done and was just like, it's me, like a bright young lady. Um, and so I was staring at that face, like the picture of Dorian Gray all the time. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I thought like, what if I wanted to be a different person. Um, and so then it sort of felt like, well, uh, I'll have to make some sort of shift there. So then there was like this sort of question of like telling my bosses I'm going to be transitioning. When do I get new headshots? Do I wait as long as I can so I look really cool and different? Or do I just get it over with as quickly as possible? And yeah. So mostly it went great. Um, I did eventually end up getting more letters from trans people or just from people in general uh, thinking about the trans people in their own lives. Um, uh, not like a huge, huge difference, but definitely an uptick. Um, and that was really lovely because uh, it was just really nice to hear from other people who felt sort of bolstered by, oh, well, if you've gone through this, you might have some thoughts on the matter. And um, that felt really lovely. So I would say overall, it was like a really beautiful addition to the work that I was getting to do. That's beautiful. I think, you know, there is such a lack of education out there on LGBTQIA plus stuff, particularly in schools. So I kind of thought you being out there as this sort of visible, um, you know, role model for the community that people would go, hey, I have questions, you know? Yeah, and it was just kind of nice too, because, you know, I could really, like, I had skin in the game. I could really say, like, why not try a sex change? I've done it. It's not so bad. <laughs>
Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, and just like nice opportunities for levity. And again, too, if I'd been sort of self-conscious at the beginning of, I haven't had that much life experience. And then it was like, well, I've done something kind of neat that not everybody gets to do. It's a little bit like, you know, someone who's been to every continent. It was like, oh, it's sort of chic. <laughs> when you are, you know, the writer of an advice column, does that give you time to sort of work through your own stuff? Like, do you get something out of that process? I think so. It's, I, I don't want to say something like, you know, I learn as much from the letter writers as I hope I teach because I think that's, that can't possibly be true if you're in a position of giving advice constantly. If I really were about learning as much, I would have been asking them questions and yeah. listening. Um, but I do think that there was a degree to which I would think about what seemed to be some of the most common um, sort of like fears or anxieties or phobias that people had. And certainly some of them that I noticed crop up a lot, I also shared quite a lot. And yeah. so I think it especially helped me to consider my own conflict avoidance. Because yeah. um, you can see it so beautifully when somebody else describes, I've had this problem with my sister for seven years. She does not know because I have not told her. Yeah. What, what can I do? And it's like, well... You could, you could tell her. Yeah. And it seems so clear in somebody else. Like, you've been thinking about this. You've been agonizing about this for years. You must try talking to her. Um, but then in our own life, we have, you know, the 20 reasons why it's actually a really good idea for me not to talk to the person that I have a problem with. Um, and so I think seeing it so often in other people helped me to realize, ah, we all have these endless justifications. But so often the answer is talk directly to the source of the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do it in a way that's not wait until you get so mad you want to yell at them, yeah. and then you've yelled something that you need to apologize for, and now you're in the worst position in the world, which is apologizing to someone who was wrong in the first place. And that's, <laughs> that's really the thing that I wanted to help people never have to do. Is That was like my one goal. If I can save you from that, then I'll consider it a job well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, your more recent book, um, something that may shock and discredit you. It, when I read it, it's very much a book that only you could have written with your retelling of Bible stories um, alongside your experiences of, of gender um, transition. With the, the Bible stuff, so you were raised in an evangelical household. Mm -hmm. How have you gone about untangling yourself from that world? Absolutely, yeah. So just to be clear, there are other stories in that book as well. It's not just like, here's the Bible, <laughs> I transitioned... <laughs> This is the lesson for the day. Um, but, you know, it was not a book that I could have or would have wanted to have written when I was, uh, you know, closer to my own evangelical upbringing. It was really mm -hmm. separate from the work of deciding what my relationship was going to be to organized religion as an adult. So um, I... Uh, you know, it had been many, many years since I'd been a regular church attender. I'd gotten to uh, work through on my own end my sort of feelings about uh, certain elements of my religious upbringing, some of which were, you know, lovely, delightful, uh, rewarding, interesting, invigorating. There's, a, you know, really uh, deep and rich uh, Christian tradition that I have a great deal of appreciation and admiration for and other mm -hmm. things that drove me nuts and I didn't want to replicate in my own adulthood. So uh, I I'm glad that this was a book I wrote a little bit later in life rather than sort of like, I'm 23 and I don't have to go to church anymore. Let me tell you what I think of that. Yeah. Um, just because uh, I needed a little time to sort of decompress. Yeah. yeah. What did you learn growing up in that environment that has helped you on your own journey, even now that you've stepped away from that environment? Yeah. You know, I think there's just... 
it's so difficult to talk about a religious upbringing in a way that doesn't sell it out, I think, because it feels so easy to sort of immediately play to the cheap seats. Not that there are any cheap seats here tonight. <laughs> I speak in metaphor. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult, I think, to talk about the things that are worthwhile or meaningful um, and, and not to sort of go straight to, here's what I would have changed or here's what was repressive or difficult or what we all should be more enlightened than. So I suppose what I think I value the most was engagement with texts that had their own rich history of engagement so that there was like not just, here are these very old books we talk about, but there's like a, a you know 2,000 years of tradition of people talking about these books. So you can talk about you know the 18th person to talk about this or you can talk about this and there's like circles within circles, wheels within wheels. And that's incredibly complex and rich and beautiful. Um, so that I was able to talk about the story of uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel in a way that I could really separate from my own feelings about uh, Sunday school, for example. Mm. Um, and especially, too, I think uh, the book of Genesis is in many ways the stories of um, like fraternal estrangement getting better and better. You know, you start with Cain and Abel, which is murder and resentment, you know, it's as, as, as strange as you can get until you get, uh, you know, like Jacob and Esau who reconcile briefly and then kind of go on with the rest of their lives until you get later to, you know, the story of Joseph and his brothers and they are reunited with their father and they weep and they fall on one another's shoulders and they say, uh, you know, that, that they're reconciled and they're going to learn to live together. And I think that's a really fascinating way of thinking about the book of Genesis and about minimizing the fallout from family estrangement and finding genuine ways to um, reconcile with people who have harmed one another. So mm. there's a lot of there there. Yeah, no, it, it's very clever. And as you said, it's not just about the Bible. Um, you know, there are, there are pop culture references. I've read several other books. <laughs> Um, but, you know, there, there's really interesting pop culture references as well. It's very funny. Um, one of my favourite moments in the book is when you declare that Gomez Adams from the Adams family was an icon of transmasculinity. I, I wouldn't have, you know, presumed that straight away. I love but, to but, presume but I, things. But I was here for it. I was like, OK, Daniel, what, what do you have to say about this? And you write that um, Gomez takes vocational glee in his masculinity that is distinctively transmasculine. Um, you say, one gets the idea watching Gomez that he delights in getting to be a man, short and boisterous and nurturing and bursting with hope and pocket watches. And uh, it's very easy to imagine Gomez's inner euphoria-driven monologue when he wakes up every morning, ah, how wonderful, another stormy day, ah, ha, 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 ha. Once again, I'm a short and stocky husband and father with a wife as tall as God. What a luck. <laughs> is this what life is like for you? <laughs> Not infrequently. Um, and I, I like also just like declaring things to be true and figuring out if I think I'm right afterwards. So I think you really did uh, find that line of my thinking in Gomez Adams. I think one of the things that's really unique about the Adams family and one of the reasons that I think it's such a, um, like, interesting family to return to is rare in sitcom history is it, it's a family that is notable by their love for one another. Um, in part because of the nature of the sitcom form, you need new forms of closure at the end of every episode. And more often, uh, sitcom families traffic in exasperation, resentment, miscommunication. And the thing that freaks everyone out in the Adams Family universe is this family is really close. There are also a bunch of like blood-sucking freaks, but like the thing that upsets people primarily 
primarily about the Adamses is not their gothness, but their genuine love for and enthusiasm for their relationships with one another, which is one of the reasons that the new show Wednesday does not understand the Adams family. Mm. Even though everyone on it seems like a very, you know, talented, interesting person, whatever they're doing is not the Adams family. Right, right. Okay. So you, you This is going to be the headline now. It's like Daniel Lavery <laughs> comes out swinging against Wednesday. Like what does he have against that show? It's a fun show. It's a different family, but it's a fun show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um before coming out, you had a um a public reputation as a feminist running the the legendary women's website The Toast. Thank you for saying that I had a public reputation <laughs> and that I was legendary. This is <laughs> This is immensely flattering. It's, it's all true. Um, being trans doesn't make you any less of a feminist. Thank God. <laughs> but have the TERFs come after you? Uh, you know, not, I think, any more than anybody else. I think that's one of the really um, nice things about, you know, uh, I, I appreciate the legendary, but I, I, again, <laughs> I, it wasn't like, I can go to the grocery store. No one's like, is that blogger Danny Lavery? <laughs> I think I read something of his about uh, Victorian novels eight years ago. Um, So, you know, certainly I think it it was a relief to be reminded that nobody transitions because they've sort of like totted up the scores of men and women and then decided which team is better. And then they go join that team because Mm. that's the best one. Um, And so it was just a relief to remember, you know, it's about bodily autonomy and desire and embodiment. And um, there are good ways to be any type of person that you would like to be. And uh, yeah, no one, no one transitions because they're like, now this one, maybe somebody has. I don't want to take that away. If somebody is like, no, 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 I thought about it very carefully. I have a scoring system and a spreadsheet and I picked the best one. I don't want to take that from you. Congratulations. I hope you enjoy it. Um, But yeah, I I think for the most part, uh, I was lucky to um, have friends and move in circles where the understanding about, uh, you know, the ideas of feminism were really consistent with transness, um, autonomy, uh, deciding what you're going to do with your own body and your life. Um, and that wasn't like, uh, here's team feminism and here's team trans people mm. and go, you know, wail on each other, which is good because I am not athletic. <laughs> do you have abs yet? No. Um, <laughs> There's a chapter uh, that I actually got to read when I was in uh, Auckland, which was very fun in something that may shock and discredit you, that is how I intend to comport myself when I have abs someday. That is like a delirious... I I forgot how long it is until I read it out loud. And I really go all in. Someday when I have abs, which I will, I don't know how, but I will. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be incredibly relaxed about it, and you won't even realize it until one day someone says, oh, can you get me those lentils? Because I'll be the kind of person who just constantly makes like wholesome, thrown-together meals of lentils for my good <laughs> friends when they stop by, because I have so many friends. And then I'll reach for it on the shelf, and I'll say, oh, my God, he has abs. Do you think he knows he has abs? He never talks about it. Usually when people get abs, they talk about it. Mm. But it's like they didn't even change him, except in some ways I think his work has gotten better. <laughs> And so that's the whole thing. I've done nothing to try to get abs um, except for think a lot about how calm and charming I'll be. Okay, okay. In, in your book, you, you talk about how you delayed transitioning. What were your fears about moving forward? Sure, yeah. So it wasn't something that I had thought consciously about doing until I was in my 30s, um, which is not to say that I didn't sort of later 
reflect, did a lot of reflecting, I was like a damn pond, um, <laughs> about places that it might have kind of come up in different or slightly difficult to recognize forms earlier in life. But it was not something that I thought consciously about doing from a young age. So I just spent some time both with myself and in therapy trying to think through, you know, what do we do with a strong desire that feels as though it fell upon my life like a thunderbolt and I can't necessarily trace it to a certain source or root that I find trustworthy. It wasn't quite like I need to get rid of this feeling, but it was I want to feel certain that I understand um, if there's longevity here as opposed to am I just going to have a really weird year and then eventually it'll pass like when you really have to sneeze. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, after about a year of sort of like letting I dare not wait upon I dare, I decided to start taking steps towards transitioning with this sort of understanding of there's not an overnight man switch you hit mm -hmm. where you just wake up the next day with a full beard. I still don't have a full beard. This is scanty at best. <laughs> um, but thinking, you know, I want to take these small steps. That feels important to me. And if I reach a point that uh, the sort of downsides outweigh the benefits, I will pause or stop and reassess, mm. um, which I'm really glad I got to do. Um, I sometimes joke about how a lot of times if someone's thinking about starting testosterone, we treat it like people at a group dinner buying French fries. Like, do you want fries? Because <laughs> if four of us get it, I'll have a little. But I don't want to get fries just for me. Right. Um, and so... You know, but that's also sometimes it's, you need that. Sometimes you need the cover of many people getting fries because maybe you really did just want three. Yeah, I never just want three, but someone might. <laughs> um, you're in a, a beautiful tea for tea relationship with your wife, Grace Lavery. Mm -hmm. What was it like transitioning at the same time as your partner? Oh my gosh, really fun. Highly recommend it. <laughs> um, I genuinely mean that. I'm sorry if that sounded at all uh, sarcastic. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> but very much like two different modes. Because for Grace, she had been thinking about it on and off for a long time, quite consciously. And she has a fun little joke that she can say and that I can say, but most of you you can't, which is that then here comes Lord Rapid Onset swanning around. This is a good joke. I'm glad two of you laughed. You'll, you'll get it later. Um, but so it was very like, you know, for, for her, it was like, I've really given this a lot of thought. I know the ways in which this is going to really change my life. And I was like, well, I spent six months freaking out. I'm doing it. Um, and it was kind of great, you know, like occasionally we'd swap a shirt, but for the most part, like her version of being a woman looked really different from how I had done it. My version of being a guy was totally different from how she had done it. And we were just sort of like, well, it's weird that you like that, but have a blast. Right, right. Yeah. What was your wedding like? Um, oh, our wedding? Yeah. It was beautiful. It was lovely. Weirdly, it was at the same building I went to high school prom at, which I... Was that surreal? <laughs> uh, mostly because I didn't even remember where I had gone to high school prom. And so when we went to this place, I was like, this looks so familiar. And then uh, my friend Hugo says, yeah, we went to prom there. Um, but that was lovely. You know, it was strange. It, it was about three weeks after um, I had become estranged from my family. So we were in the middle of um, filing a lot of reports. Um, and I also had an allergic reaction halfway through, so I was pretty hopped up on Benadryl. But, like, even, even with all that going on, it was a really nice time. Weddings are great. Marry, marriage is fun. People mm -hmm. should do it. Get a sex change and get married. <laughs> <laughs> or reverse order, whichever you want. Right, right. And, and how did your life change after, you know, affirming your gender? Uh, I mean... I became a different kind of person in some ways, and my life didn't change at all in some others. Um, some of it changed more moving to New York. This was weird. Uh, again, I don't know how many of you here are transsexuals. I hope a few. But uh, I, 
I didn't get any wounds. <laughs> you. Fine. No, no, no. It's too late now. Um, but uh, we were living in California, and then we moved to the East Coast, and it was like I, I, I was set back another year and a half. I was a I was a sir on the West Coast, and then we moved to to New York, and all of a sudden it was ma'am all the time again. I was like what does the East Coast want from me? And I couldn't figure it out. But a year and a half later, I got there. It was fantastic. I have a neighbor now who calls me Pajama Sam because he always <laughs> sees me walking my dogs in my pajamas. <laughs> um, so something that may shock and discredit you, it's not your typical trans memoir. And you talk about that as part of the book. And you devote a chapter to, to titles of transmasculine memoirs you didn't want to write, um, such as, what if masculinity, but in a soft sort of drapey jacket? Or, in which I rescue masculinity by taking up weightlifting, heroically. What were you trying to avoid when writing this? I mean, part of what's really funny about that is every transition memoir starts with, this is unlike transition memoirs you may have read before. It's sort of like, why is this night unlike all other nights? Like, you have to say that to have a transition memoir. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much that I was like, oh, I've read every transition memoir on the planet and now I know which ones I don't want to be like. It was more like, a little bit like I was saying earlier when I was thinking through, it's difficult to talk about having had a religious childhood in a way that doesn't feel like you're trying to sell it out yep. um, or taking cheap pot shots at it. And I think similarly, I felt like I would often have a tendency internally towards what's the easiest way to tell this story? Or like, God, I really want to use the expression son of a preacher, man, because it's a great song. <laughs> and everyone knows what you mean and it sort of fits but it also sort of doesn't um, and so I felt sort of very aware like I don't want to use a fucking butterfly memo uh, analogy at any point mm. which is not to say that that can't be useful just um, it, it, I, I'd heard it before um, and, and trying to think through what are ways that I can talk about this honestly that don't just have to do with finding the simplest shortest way to tell a story mm -hmm. uh, I think that was the thing I was struggling with the most and yeah. that's part of why I think it's really disjointed and there's so many very short chapters and it often goes into a totally different direction every time I've like landed on a thought or an idea for more than a few seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I started reading, I was like, hang on, what's going on now? Like, what, what, what? And it's like, okay, now I've got it. I'm in, I'm in the rhythm sort yeah. of now. And the, the title is something I, that may shock and, or discredit you. It's a, was it a Simpsons reference? Did I read that It is, correctly? yeah, yeah. The late, great Phil Hartman voiced uh, the, this character called Lionel Hutz, who's this like eternally sweaty lawyer who's always kind of like ambulance chasing and trying to make a quick buck but never quite succeeds. And mm -hmm. he's trying to discredit a character with a photographic memory by asking what kind of tie he has on. And the character says, you know, it's like a, a club tie with red stripes and a half Windsor knot or something. And he really ostentatiously turns around and is like visibly struggling to get his tie off and says, is that what you think? Well, if that's what you think, then I've got something to tell you, something that may shock and discredit you. And he turns around and says, and that's that I'm not wearing a tie at all. And everyone's like, oh, they fall for it beautifully. And, <laughs> It's such a wonderful moment of like sweaty, panicked attempts to pull the wool over someone else's eyes, and yet that somehow works in a way that makes you feel even more exposed and fraudulent than if it had failed. That felt like, well, that's, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> um, you've become estranged from your family in recent years mm -hmm. for it's a, a whole other big topic. But I'm curious, again, with the gender stuff, because of their evangelical beliefs, what were their attitudes to you when you came out? You know, for the most part, not bad. Um, you know, uh, not amazing, because uh, that would have been very surprising. Yeah. Um, but I, I think actually there was more of a desire to know and understand me and to work with me and to, like, come along with me in my life. Um, 
And so, you know, it's still, I mean, to be clear, it started because my mother looked at me one day and said, you've been breaking out a lot on your neck lately. Did you start testosterone without telling me? Which is like, <laughs> so good. Wow. Like, it didn't feel good, but it was like, I had to admire it, that level of like surveillance and just like, you know, just like, oh, you nailed it. You got, like, she was right. What she a was savvy right. mom. She, you know, like, it, it, I didn't love it, but she was right. Mm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there were definite moments. Uh, and, and certainly there were also moments where I really dropped the ball or really fumbled or was really inexpert in my own ability to discuss my desires. And again, I don't want to say that, like, all of this is a, a benefit of becoming estranged. But one benefit of becoming estranged is you get a lot of chance to sort of um, revisit and think about your relationships in context and without sort of, like, pressure or adding new archival material by having ongoing conversations. And so I think one of the things that I would often respond to as a grown child would be um, avoidance and embarrassment and, and, like, premature embarrassment of my own desires or my own choices that mm. if I felt like I didn't know how to articulate um, were best hand-waved away. And that's yeah. not easy to deal with, it, whether you're a parent or anyone else. So I can really appreciate ways in which that was probably, uh, you know, difficult for them. But yeah, no, it was not, it was not transition that, that um, was the primary issue. And that was in itself heartening. Like it's sad in other ways that mm. our relationship ended later. But um, I do really give them credit for uh, being prepared for something that they could not possibly have anticipated. Mm. Are you comfortable talking about how you've become estranged? Oh, it's my favourite thing. Your family? Yeah. I okay. do it recreationally. Sorry. I apologise. That's, that's too silly. Um, that's not true. I just wanted you to feel at ease. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, this was part of what we had talked about, about my wedding being a little tricky. About three weeks before I got married, my brother told me that he was a pedophile and that he had known this for most of his life. Um, and that he believed his work with children, which was extensive and unsupervised, was a good thing, and um, that the rest of the family knew and had been encouraging him to continue in that work because he believed it helped to treat his pedophilia. And, and, and by pedophile, um, you're referring to the, I suppose, the orientation as opposed to being a sex offender. Is that um, right? Or? His claim at the time was that he had not hurt any children. He yep. told me several other things that gave me reason to doubt his version of events. Right. Um, but yeah, his claim was just that it was okay because he would just fall in love with children and um, that that was okay. It, of course it wasn't. Um, and uh, learning that my parents had abused their position of authority at their church to make sure he could take children on overnight trips um, was devastating. And... Um, Right away, uh, my wife and I knew we have to stop it. Um, and we also knew that we couldn't ask them to stop it. So um, we contacted the church. We contacted every other place that he had been a volunteer at. Um, and we filed reports. And um, that was the last time I talked to my family directly, although they did attempt to get in touch with us through other people to say, you can't file these reports because if you do, your brother will kill himself. Um, and I said, if you think he's suicidal, please take him to the hospital. And otherwise, that doesn't have anything to do with what needs to happen. Um, so ultimately, um, the church did submit to an outside investigation. My father was asked to resign. Uh, later, some additional allegations would come out against him. Um, but that was, um, that was the last time we spoke, was November of 2019. I took some time off from Dear Prudence just because... Uh, I couldn't possibly have given anyone advice in that state. Yeah. Um, and 
ultimately, my brother no longer works with children. He was yep. forced to go to treatment. Um, the churches have been able to institute new uh, policies of safeguarding, and it's no longer as easy as just saying, I want to lead children's trips overnight by myself uh, mm -hmm. in order to be able to do so, which is a good thing. I mean, part of what I had really wanted to stress to them is um, my primary focus here is not just uh, if he thinks what he's been doing is a good idea, there's institutional failures of safeguarding here that um, should never have been in place. Um, and that felt really clear to me mm -hmm. and um, was hard to understand why it didn't feel clear to them. Um, but I think it was something that I, I talked about sometimes in the column was that sometimes you have the gift of clarity when you're in a situation that is otherwise uh, deeply dark or deeply painful. Um, and that was something that I felt like I had. Like I didn't have a lot of other gifts that I could feel or experience at that time, but it was incredibly clear to me. Nothing about what they're doing seems reasonable, sensible, would make me feel proud, would, would be something I'd be able to defend in public. Um, that road's not a, that's not a viable road. Mm. Um, thank you so much for mm. explaining all of that. And mm. sorry I didn't give a content warning as well before I asked that question. Mm -hmm. If anyone is, you know, feeling uncomfortable and needs some time out, that's perfectly okay. Um, all this happened while you were writing your, mm -hmm. your memoir. Mm -hmm. What impact did that have on the book yeah. that you were writing? So at this point, the memoir was mostly done and it was actually at the... Um, at the printers. And so I had to get in touch with my agent and say, we need to bring the book back because the last chapter of the book had been this sort of lovely chapter about my relationship with my father that had ended on a sort of really lovely note. Um, and I didn't want to include any of this information in the book in part just because there were still ongoing investigations and also I just didn't, I didn't want to. So instead the, the book just had a different type of ending. Um, so on the one hand, I'm really glad it was mostly finished. And, and on the other hand, it, it really felt, um, you know, I, I felt like, wow, I, I really invoked something with a title like something that may shock and discredit you, which is mm. not to say that I felt like I'd called it into being. It just felt like I got more than I bargained for. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it was just really strange. It is, I think, often we don't realize the direction from which problems are going to come. Sometimes we do. Sometimes you see it a mile away and sometimes you don't. And I had remembered sort of thinking right before I told my family I was going to be transitioning, I was with my sister one day, we were watching a movie, and I remember being really overwhelmed by this sense of um, deep, deep poignancy and, and got kind of weepy and just had this thought of, I'm going to lose my family over this. And then had felt so buoyed and, and relieved and grateful that that hadn't been the case. And then it was just like um, uh, this, this comet from out of left field of, you are going to lose them for totally unrelated reasons. And not totally unrelated in as much as, you know, there's always webbing that connects different elements of how one particular family handles issues of, like, sexuality or gender or, or um, safety. But, um, you know, it was... Um, uh, it was the bolt... Uh, that fell, you know, it was, it was the bolt that fell across my life that changed it the most, more mm -hmm. than changing sex. And again, if that sounds a little bit like cheap or cheesy to use those languages together, I don't mean it that way. I just mean um, one was so much bigger than the other. One felt like such a bigger change than the other. It was the difference between I'm part of this family, I'm part of this history. Um, we have these connections, we have these groundings together. Um, and I, I continue to remain deeply grieved that none of my relatives ever said this was the right thing to do. We were wrong to try to 
protect and enable this behavior. He is better off not working with children. Thanks for helping. I mean, again, like, of course, I say that out loud, and I'm like, they're not going to say that. But I, it did grieve me deeply that nobody had said, we were not doing the right thing. There's a chance to change our lives. We can turn it around. We don't have to keep doing this. Mm. Um, and I think that was the thing that I took away from it the most was I my like greatest hope for all of that would have been that someday any of them could have understood that as an act of love and not an act of punishment or resentment. Um, it's, it's what I feel like they raised me to do. And I don't know where they veered off from that path, but I do remember one of the things that really got me through it in those first days was thinking, I think there's a version of my mother that raised me like this to stop it. And I don't know where she went, but I know that version of her would be proud of what I'm doing. Um, and that was really useful to me. Again, it was useful to be like, that is a psychic construct that is distinct from, I'm not gonna call my mom tomorrow because I know where she's at and I can't work with it, but um, yeah. Wow. Your book has come out at a time where trans rights are under attack in the US and in other parts of the world too, here in, in Australia mm -hmm. as well. Um, you know, in the US, Republican, Republicans are unleashing a tyrant of anti-trans and anti-queer bills ahead of the election next year. What impact are you seeing this have on the people around you? Yeah, in some ways I feel so unqualified to speak to that again, you know, that particular book was so much about like my own particular individual arriving to a trans understanding of myself in my 30s. And I, I e even though I understood that being trans was going to be complicated, um, I myself was often kind of stunned by the sort of like rapid turn the country seemed to take in terms of having this preoccupation, this obsession, um, this like extinguishing obsession with transness and particularly in this like specter of corrupting the youth. So I don't know that I have any great thoughts about it or any brilliant strategy for countering it um, other than just, I think I share kind of your sense of, uh, boy, that escalated quickly mm. um, and, and a real desire to um, find ways to act in solidarity with other embattled trans people and to do our best to, you know, counter that into a world where uh, autonomy is, is, is not an embattled site. Mm. Um, and, and then also a certain degree of just, gosh, I just got here and already everyone's talking about somebody younger than me. I'm feeling <laughs> old again. <laughs> but but how, how's it affecting you, know, you and your friends and the people in your lives? Is it hard? to be trans right now? Uh, yeah, but it was hard when I started and it was hard 20 years ago. I, I think it's a little bit like that thing about Twitter. This is really reductive. Again, sorry. But like, it wasn't owned by somebody good before. You know, <laughs> it wasn't easy before. Yeah. Um, and I think I take a lot of heart in that. Like when I look at trans histories and other like trans stories and, mm. and um, people who have transitioned in incredibly difficult circumstances and under wild forms of embattlement and with fewer opportunities to connect with other trans people than we might have today. And so it just feels like, well, the only way it's going to get any easier if we, is if we try to make it happen. So let's, let's do what we can. But, mm. um, yeah. We're seeing this um, far-right anti-trans sentiment creep into Australia mm -hmm. as well. Not so long ago, we had that um, British anti-trans activist Posey Parker here. Mm -hmm. She had a, a demonstration in Melbourne where neo-Nazis turned up and mm -hmm. it's been, you know, pretty horrific. Mm -hmm. And other um, events have happened in other parts of Australia as well. But something that 
I've sort of observed through all of this are some pretty beautiful displays of allyship and some unexpected displays of allyship. Um, at one of those anti-trans rallies in Sydney, the counter-protesters counter who turned up were accompanied by the dykes on bikes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you were... Oh, they're great. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, they're you know, eternal. They're everywhere. Badass, they're the best. Yeah. You know, queer women's motorcycle gang and, mm -hmm. you know, tough and cool. And the, the story, the history of the Dykes on Bikes in Sydney is that they were defenders of the community during all these gay hate crimes in the, the 80s and 90s. And they kind of rose up to protect people in the community. And it was like they're doing that again now for the, the trans community. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in Victoria, the trans flag was raised outside of parliament. So there's some, been some positive gestures mm -hmm. As, as part of all this, have you seen any, you know, surprising displays of allyship in the US? Yeah, I, I, I wish I could think of like some great, beautiful example that was coming to the forefront of my mind right now that I could share. But um, yeah, I, I do find that um, standing together, working together is is the only thing that counteracts that kind of thing. And this is this is the only example that's coming to my mind right now, but sometimes it just helps to surprise people. Um, my wife and I, a few years ago, were in uh, Brighton in the UK, and this fellow was following us through the street, and he did not care for our whole deal, and he was just, you know, kind of keeping up a steady flow of chatter. And I don't, I'm not saying this because I think this is the best technique, but it worked in that moment. I just whirled around and I shook his hand, um, just like, <laughs> just went for it before he had a chance to kind of realize what I was doing. And I just shook his hand. I was like, I'm, I went really Midwestern because I find that that helps to just fully folksy. I just drank a glass of milk and I was just like, my name's Danny. Nice to meet you. This is my wife, Grace, and I. We just came from dinner. I don't know if you're enjoying your evening out, but we're having a nice time. Where are you headed, buddy? And he's just like, uh, some, and he like mumbled something and like wandered away. And again, this is not advice. I don't think you should always <laughs> shake the hand of someone who's threatening you. You should only shake hands when you feel safe. But sometimes it's nice when you can, you know, disarm someone by just being so enthusiastic. And like again, like when you shake someone's hand, you just your your muscle memory goes to like, I guess I'm in a professional environment. We've just been introduced. <laughs> like I'm not supposed to yell because we're shaking hands. And then you've tricked them. It's sort of like if I could have made him a quick cup of tea and handed it to him, I would have done that, but I didn't have a kettle. What, what did he do? I just feel like if someone hands you a cup of tea, you immediately know, like, I, I mustn't be yelling because I'm clearly relaxing at a good friend's kitchen table. So, like, so he was just chill and... <laughs> oh, he just like, wandered away. I think it just took the wind out of his sails a little bit. And it's always nice to take the wind out of somebody's sails. Yeah. When they're bad sails heading in an evil direction. I really like that. That's fantastic. Um, so how does your life today compare to the adult life you thought you might have had when you were a young person? Man, it's so difficult, too, because now I think just thinking about childhood, even removing the word religious from it is so difficult. I don't know how we can try to faithfully represent our child selves, because I, I think I remember what I was like at 10 and 16, but it's been a very long time since I was either of those ages, and the, the sort of selves that stand in between in between me and myself at those ages is there's so much interpolation and there's so much interpretation that um, I, I really, I only have myself to go on whether I'm faithfully representing them. And of course, I always think I'm faithfully representing everything. I never think I'm lost. I never think I'm wrong. I always want to say that I'm 5'8". I know I'm 5'7". And, <laughs> um, and so in some ways, I think that uh, I, I would have been really 
frightened or confused uh, at 15 to think about myself at this age. But I also don't think I would have had any sense of, well, what does it look like to be 38? It would have just felt like, what does it feel like to be the city of Chicago? Who could possibly know such a thing? Um, I, I think there's lots of continuity there. I think there are ways that we would have had a shared understanding of like pleasure, vigor, delight, desire, happiness, contentedness, and family, but um, it's entirely possible that we would just feel like total strangers to each other. Mm, mm. And as, she might just be like, you still break out a lot on your neck. <laughs> as a kid, did you see you know, a future with, with the church or is that the only world you knew? No, I think even in, by high school, I think I had like a pretty complicated relationship with it of like, sometimes this feels deeply moving and meaningful and like a real source of um, power to me. And sometimes I feel like, what are we doing here? And sometimes I'm like, well, that can't be true. So I, I think I had a wary sense of attachment to it at that mm. age. Um, and I still do. Like, I think if you have doubt while you're within the church and then you leave the church, now you have doubt outside of it, which sometimes looks like, mm, I don't know, there might be hell. I should be prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think doubt is the more kind of continuous experience rather than being on one side or the other. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I relate to the caginess and I still carry the caginess with me. Yeah, yeah. And, and what about, you know, in the future from here now? Like what, what path do you sort of see yourself on? Um, I'm always going to want to have a lot of dogs. I really enjoy having <laughs> multiple dogs. I never had more than one pet before, and it's really exciting because if you have two dogs, your dog has a dog. And they, like, they have whole conversations without you. They like interact. You leave the house, you come back, and they're like, oh, we've been doing stuff. Um, and that's like really, really beautiful and delightful. So uh, I really recommend... My just general advice is if you leave here tonight, get a second dog if you already have one. If you already have more than two, please come talk to me afterwards and show me pictures because that sounds really wonderful. <laughs> um, more dogs, I guess, is my answer to your question. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, going back to, uh, you know, Dear Prudence, where you were dishing out all this advice, what, what's some of the best advice someone has given you? Gosh, I think some of the best advice I've ever gotten was whenever someone offers you a free drink, you should always take it. Like if you're, and I've been doing that on this tour, by the way, is occasionally you'll be led somewhere and they'll say, would you like a cup of tea? And I always say, I would love one. Thank you. And often they're shocked. They're like, no one ever does that. Everyone always says like, I'm fine. And I'm like, they're not getting free tea. Or like... (laughs) I think I heard this at an informational interview when I was young, because when you're young, you sometimes go on a lot of informational interviews, because it's like people are like, I can't give you a real job, so you can't have a real interview, but I know you need to feel like you did something with your day, so have an informational interview, and they say, like, do you want anything? You say yes, because you might not get the job, and they probably won't be able to help you out professionally. So you're going to be out an afternoon, but you will have gotten a free Diet Coke. <laughs> This also applies to car dealerships because you're, maybe you're not going to buy the car and like AA meetings because there's free coffee at a lot of AA meetings. <laughs> and so then like at least you always know you're getting free drinks. Yeah, yeah. Good advice. Um, before I come to some audience questions, I called you an internet weirdo at the start and I feel like I should give you the platform to talk about your internet weirdness. Um, you have a, a newish website, The Stop Gap. Did that start as a blog? It's a website sort of. like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my friend Joe Livingston and I a while ago were saying, it's really sad, there's not as many websites as there used to be. And we miss having websites. <laughs> you remember like 10 years ago, there were all kinds of websites. You could just type something into your little browser and there you'd, you'd be in someone's little blog. It was nice. And now there's just like three big social media platforms and a lot of them involve videos. And I don't like videos so much. Um, and we both kind of realized like, 
we're a little tired. We're not in our 20s anymore. We don't know how to make money from websites. We're not going to try. But websites keep shutting down, and that's sad. So we, we decided to come up with something called the stopgap. The slogan is, it's better than nothing. <laughs> Delivered like, you know, those Flintstones uh, animals that like do the chores, the vacuum, and they look at the camera like, it's a living, but it's not a living because we're not making any money. To be clear. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, a, a little thing. We put some goofy stuff up on it. We enjoy it. Um, it is not making anyone any money, and it's a lot of fun. Because mm -hmm. it's nice sometimes to not worry about trying to make money from something. I mean, I still worry about making money. I just have to go do that elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're still doing the... the um Shatner. The Chatner. The Chatner. William Shatner is litigious. We did have to drop the Shatner from yeah, the Shatner yeah. Chatner, which is totally fine. He is entitled to his own name. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I still do the newsletter. And that was part of it too, because I like doing the newsletter and I make some money from the newsletter. But I thought there is a limit to how much I can email people. Even I, it's like, think of the writer you like the most. How many times a week would you like them to email you? Probably not more than twice, right? It's, it's not more than twice. Yeah, so yeah. I thought it'd be good to have a blog so I could put more of my goofy little ideas without driving away everyone. Um, so I do that as well. I'm working on my next book, which is really exciting, um, and uh, a couple of other like freelance projects on the side. But yeah, I, I just do my little typing all day. Yeah, awesome. Um, let's go to our audience. I know you have a bit of a rule with I audience have one questions. Rule. My one rule is just two questions. We don't do more than that. It's too much pressure. Things start to get rambly. We're just going to have two questions yeah. tonight. One of so, the two. So we'll take two questions from the audience. This is like two total, not two yeah. per person. Yeah. So it better be a bloody good yeah, question, so not amazing. to put pressure on you. Yeah. Oh, look at this. But they like it. They like the rule. Yeah. Um, please raise your hand if you have a question and we'll get a microphone to yeah. you. Just down the, the front over here. This is a lot of pressure and the question is totally not worth it. So I apologise <laughs> to everyone. Um, so slate commenters can be pretty brutal. Um, I think especially towards you and Janae. Did you ever read the comments or um, did you think about their answers, um, what they'd said in future answers or did you just avoid them altogether? Sometimes, yeah, especially for the uh, live chat. Uh, which So the Dear Prudence job was sort of broken down into there was a live chat every Monday of about 13 to 15 questions, a column that came out through the middle of the week. It was about 8 to 10, and then a podcast that came out later in the week. And it was kind of like in that order, the amount of outside feedback uh, I had to incorporate. So like the podcast, not very much. It was kind of like, I can say what I want and pretend no one has any thoughts about it. And the column was, I might get some emails, and the live chat is like, you're answering questions really quickly while a bunch of people are also yelling at you. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, it, it wasn't like constant, just like, I hope you die today. Like, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. But absolutely, like, it's a critical, you know, people who meet every Monday to read live advice are critical. <laughs> These are not people who are like, hey, do you, you know, life is so difficult. Who, who knows? We're all just doing our best. Like, that is not the type of person who is on their computer at 9 o'clock Monday morning ready to go. And in fairness... <laughs> That's true of me too. So I felt like in a lot of ways, it was you know, an incredibly rewarding job. You know, I got to tell people what I thought they should do and I got paid for it. And so if part of the like, uh, payment that was then exacted in turn was every Monday, I'd get my little bubble burst by a couple of people who were like, you're not that great, get it together. Um, <laughs> it's not so bad. And, and I think it gave me a healthy appreciation for uh, you know, my appetite for praise is boundless and it is not good to just lean into it. And um, it was just nice to be reminded of, like, there's a lot of people who are like, get it together, you piece of shit. <laughs> did, did people ever, like, let you know how their lives turned out after taking 
Every once advice. in a while, I would get an update. And usually if someone writes in with an update, it's because they've taken the advice and it went pretty well. I think if you take it and it goes badly, you're less likely to write in. If you mm. don't take it, you're less likely to write in again. So yeah. usually they were nice. Every once in a while, if someone writes back and says, I really hate what you said to me. And... Um, then I have to. Then I really. Because it like, could be brutal. Well, and that one doesn't feel as like I don't want to dismiss that. Like, yeah. Because that's like, well, you're the person who asked me the question. I need to really think about whether or not I want to take your advice in return, or if I still think that what I said in the first place was right. So those are usually they'll 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 stay with you a little bit longer. But even then, it's like, oh, thank you for coming back. You know. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. One more. That didn't count. <laughs> okay. But you don't have to. If you guys want to get out of here early, we can have class outside. I'm sure someone's got a fantastic question. Yeah, just oh, down yeah. the back. This is it. This is the last here. one. With the Shatner, Shatner, sorry, Shatner, um, after it got like <laughs> syndicated by Substack did and became kind of more a contra- contractual thing, did your feelings about writing it change? And how did you manage that professionally if they did change? They did not. Oh. Yeah, easy answer. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to say any more to that? Uh, yes, in fairness, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so for two years, I had a, a like a pro deal with them where they were just like, we'll give you extra money even if people don't sign up for it anymore, and that's it. And I was like, great, I'd like extra money. And uh, I got extra money, and they didn't ask me to do anything else, and that was nice. Uh, and those two years are over, so now I just make my regular amount of money from it again. Um, I think they probably benefited from having like a trans person write a newsletter for them when a lot of other, you know, visibly anti-trans people write for them. Um, but, you know, again, it, it felt a little bit like Twitter, like did somebody good run all the places I've wrote for before? Um, and uh, it was really nice. Money's great. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, piece of advice. If you were on stage interviewing Daniel Lavery at the Sydney Writers' Festival in Sydney, would you wrap this up now or would you give Daniel an opportunity to make some final remarks? I would say Daniel's had plenty of attention. For <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you so much to our audience for entrusting me to ask the right questions, I hope. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.